Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event in association with Humanities West. And I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. Uh, it's my great pleasure to welcome Martin Kemp here from the University of Oxford, Emeritus Professor, lifelong studier, intriguer, discusser, explainer of Leonardo da Vinci. So a great pleasure to have him here in San Francisco. He's here in town for events at Stanford, which he just completed, and this weekend at Humanities West, and uh, the Commonwealth Club took advantage of that fact. So, Martin, thank you very, very much for coming uh, to discuss the painting Salvatore Mundi by Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, Thank you very much, George, and uh, thank you for coming. I'm old enough to remember when two screens in art history were for comparative images. Does anybody remember that? You had two screens and you you showed different images. I find it quite disconcerting that you have two images which are the same. I sort of keep comparing them. Well, they look rather similar, but uh, anyway, we'll we'll see see how we get on. Um, there's obviously been an enormous amount about the Salvatore Mundi in the press, and the American press in particular have produced some real CRAP. Um, anyway, this is going to be the this is going to be the the inside story of the of the real research on uh, on what is actually a very a very remarkable painting with an extraordinary sense of presence. Um, I'm we're obviously concerned with. Does it look like a Leonardo in that sense of old-fashioned sense of connoisseurship? But there's an enormous body of evidence you can bring to bear in Leonardo, which uh, supplements that instinct as to whether it's uh, whether it's by him or or not. Anyway, let's uh, let's see how we get on. Um, the this is just sheer advertising. Um, <laughs> The Salvatore Mundi is one of the chapters in the book, which you can buy outside. I've got my book signing pen, um, and, uh, and, and a very enthusiastic and keen to sign books if you if you want if you want to buy them. Um, anyway, there is a chapter on that, and this is not that chapter, but it's the material which I'm talking about does appear in the chapter in one in one in one shape or form. Um, Today's Leonardo, um, I get sent new Leonardos all the time. Um, this is last week's new Leonardo. It's not completely daft. It's probably Spanish, it's probably 19th century, but it's not crazy. I get sent absolutely extraordinary, bizarre things that people insist are Leonardo, and then they abuse me for not being able to see their their enlightened taste is, uh, is, is true. And I've actually stopped giving opinions um, I came off the social media and, yeah, I'm mean, a not very young Oxford professor and I was actually stalked to a conference in The Hague once by somebody who had crazy theories about Mona Lisa and I thought, I don't need this. So I've basically come off social media. I don't, I've never taken money for giving opinions and don't take expenses. Um, I, I, I have a sense of public duty in this as, uh, um, and... Um, uh, to take money for doing it seems not right, but I'm not doing it at all now, unless something spectacular comes along, of course, in which case I, uh, I could... Um, uh, anyway, the, the story, let's take it up, when I, I became aware of it, on the 5th of March 2008, Nicholas Penny, Nick Penny, the director of the National Galleries of Scotland, said, we've got something here which I think you would like to see, and you don't refuse that kind of invitation. So I went to London, went into the conservation studio, and that was what I was confronted with, the National Gallery's second version of the Virgin of the Rocks, which they were involved in looking, thinking about cleaning it uh, for the big Leonardo show, which they were already thinking about. And the Salvatore Mundi was on the easel beside it. I walk into the room, there are some... Leonardo scholars already there, Carmen Bambach from the Met, great scholar of Leonardo drawings, two Italians, Pietro Melani and Maria Teresa Fiorio, and a man I didn't know at that point who obviously seemed to be in charge of it, who proved to be uh, Robert Simon. Anyway, you walk in and it has a presence. Um, 
you know, I've, you say, uh, see lots of rubbish, but you can't say immediately that's Leonardo and you keep saying, don't believe it, because nothing's come along in a hundred years. No new painting has come out for a hundred years. Say, so, well, it, this is most improbable. Nonetheless, there's a kind of frisson of excitement. The Russian oligarch who owned it for a short period of time said that it had a vibration. It's rather a nice way of putting it, and it does indeed have a vibration. So it started vibrating. I thought, what do I do? Do I play it cool? Do I pretend it's not very exciting? And uh, um, you know, I said hello to the others. I got out my magnifying glass, which makes me look like a professional, and um, uh, started started looking at it. And uh, uh, I'd done some geology. I did natural sciences at Cambridge. That's how I started. And I'd done some geology, and I said, oh, that's a rock crystal sphere. It's not a glass sphere, um, uh, which is a kind of smart-ass remark, but it actually happened to be true, is it? And, and, and is of some significance, as we'll see as we, as, we pass, as we pass along. The National Gallery <clears throat> decide that they're going to exhibit it in their Leonardo show. They were planning a blockbuster Leonardo show for 2013, Leonardo at the Court of Milan, this is not a Milanese painting, but there we are. Um, and also, uh, the National Gallery, I, I've been a trustee of the British Museum, the National Galleries of Scotland and the V&A, and you don't show works which are in the trade, rightly or wrongly. But that's, that's the rule. And these, this was owned by three dealers. So again, the National Gallery are <coughs> doing some not very nifty footwork um, to... <coughs> to to show this painting, to have an exhibition on Leonardo and not to have this new discovery in it was obviously unthinkable, so they, they managed to um, manipulate it so it, uh, so it worked out all right. Uh, the, other, the characters there, Larry Keith, this I think is in New York in one of the dealer's rooms, Larry Keith, the conservation officer, American the National Gallery, is examining the picture, as conservation officers will, um, on the left is Luke Sison, then at the National Gallery and was the, keep, the keeper responsible for the Italian paintings and was doing the exhibition. And Robert Simon, the New York dealer, who was one of the discoverers of the picture. Um, Luke Sison, on the strength of that, went on to become keeper of sculpture and decorative arts at the Met. And he's now back in England in the Fitzwilliam Museum. Um, so it did him his career no harm at all. Um, putting on this uh, exhibition of Leonardo and getting absolutely astonishing loans uh, 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 along the way. The picture was um, was uh, in an auction room, as we now know, in, in Los Angeles. Um, and all the dealers now get all the auction catalogues on, uh, online. So even a provincial auction like that is trawled remorselessly by the the main dealers, and Robert Simon is a New York dealer. One of his colleagues and friends, who's also a dealer, Alexander Parrish, they saw this in the catalogue, and they thought, oh, that looks interesting. And they, they uh, as we will see, they got better images of it and uh, were able to, to make some, some headway, headway with it. It was exhibited in the National Gallery, the National Gallery media partner in 2013, the National Gallery media partner with the Sunday Times, and the Sunday Times magazine did a piece, a very good journalist called Cathy Brewis um, did a big interview, and uh, we talked about the picture, and uh, she wrote a very good article without a mistake in it. As I said to Cathy, you can't be a real journalist. <laughs> and she's now moved on, I have to say. And it was shown in the exhibition. This is it being hung in 2013. Um, I suspect a rather staged photograph, but they're obviously getting the levels right. Is there a moral here that Leonardo's studies brings you to your knees? Um, it certainly does things to you anyway. And in the exhibition, as you can see there, it was shown on either side of it are two drapery drawings, red chalk drapery drawings, which I'll be looking at in, in due course, but drawings for the, Sal for the Salvatore Mundi itself. Um, the exhibition was absolutely a clamorous success. Um, the tickets, the only time I've known tickets for exhibitions selling on the black market, they were selling for the same amount as Bruce Springsteen 
uh, the boss was selling was being it was being rivaled by Leonardo for uh, uh, for ticket sales online by these companies who deal with them. The National Gallery made a great display of sort of trying to stop the the, the pirate tickets being sold, but they're absolutely delighted, and in a way they they sort they sort of encouraged it because it was a mark of their success. Um, there were time tickets. Uh, it had sold out completely the exhibition before it opened, but there were day tickets available. People were queuing from um, sort of five, six o'clock in the morning in rather inclement. The, the exhibition is a winter exhibition, and uh, that's a stoic queue. It's a bit like um, queue outside Wimbledon tennis courts, which um, the weather was not much better and uh, much worse than the. Than the, than the summer weather, weather of, uh, of Wimbledon. Anyway, the, the picture was there. It was pretty well received. One or two people were a bit huffy about it, but generally speaking, it, it fitted in. It looked right in that, uh, in that context. Um, and then extraordinary things began to happen. The picture was sold pretty quickly after the exhibition. Of course, it was owned by dealers. It was owned by a syndicate of three dealers by that time, including Moral Adelston in New York. It had been, as we will see it, it had been cleaned and it was now in very presentable condition. Uh, but what happened was that a collector called Dmitry Ribolov left, a Russian oligarch who owns Monaco Football Club, or soccer club in your, in your terms, um, bought it via Sotheby's from a man called Yves Bouvier, Ribolov Lef is on the left there and Bouvier is on the right. Bouvier is called King of the Freeports. These are storage facilities in Geneva and other places around the world, and they are full of old master paintings which never see the light of day. And a lot of pseudo-Leonardos, I have to say, are in this condition, and they're owned by syndicates who sell them on tax-free. So you can you can market your your old master painting, whatever it happens to be, to another syndicate. And I suspect there's a lot of money laundering involved in this as well. It's a distinctly dodgy business. Bouvier is the great. It has the more free ports and is the the great operator of the the system. And he was using his knowledge, as he obviously knows what's in the free port, to massage sales. He would say to a collector, "I happen to know that you know you might be able to get this for a hundred million or whatever, because uh, I know where it is and I know who owns it." He shouldn't have been doing that. Of course, there are huge issues of confidentiality. Anyway, uh, Yves Bouvier had been selling things to uh, Ribolovlev. Ribolovlev, a Russian, he'd, he'd been collecting quite seriously. And he was acting as the agent of sales. They did it via Sotheby's, but basically uh, the picture was what they call flipped, i.e., uh, Ribolov left would buy it, uh, Bouvier would buy it from Sotheby's and would then flip it straight over to, um, uh, straight over to, um, uh, Ribolov left the collector. Uh, a series of world record prices, uh, uh, Modigliani Nude, which was a world record price from Modigliani Nude, Jackson Pollock and so on. He'd been feeding him these, these pictures. And Ribolov left assumed that Bouvier was taking a decent cut. But as happened in Monaco, there was a party and uh, Ryabolovlev overheard a conversation um, and that person who was, who was well informed, who knew, the, who knew, the, um, uh, knew what was ha happening in the art world, they said, oh, I know how much Bouvier paid for that picture. And Bouvier paid 93 million pounds for it and he sold it to Ribolov left for £127 million. That is a big markup. And Bouvier was, uh, Ribolov left was absolutely disgusted, thinking that, you know, he's being ripped off. And he decided to sell all the, all the, uh, all the pictures which had come via, via Bouvier, including the, the Salvatore Mundi. Um, he arranged to meet. Bouvier in Monaco, ostensibly to discuss more sales, 
and the police were waiting there and arrested him, arrested Bouvier for money laundering and fraud. These are two very wealthy men, and the case still rumbles on, with the lawyers getting enormously rich and uh, getting no nearer justice, which is rather typical in these, uh, in these, uh, in these art cases. Anyway, the picture came up at Christie's, um, not Sotheby's, came up at Christie's, as he's very fed up with Sotheby's, who seem to be a party to all this. And, um, and it, it, it was given a guarantee at Christie's of $100 million. And the Bouvier pictures, the ones that had come uh, to Bouvier, Robert Riboloff left via Bouvier, weren't selling very well. He was making a loss on these pictures. And I thought, is it worth staying up? I knew there was a $100 million um, guarantee on it. Maybe an individual or maybe a syndicate are guaranteed to take it off off the auctioneer's hands for that price. And I thought, there's no, no point in staying up. It's not going to reach its record price. Two o'clock in the morning, my PA rings me. Um, and my f- phone starts going and my emails start going. And they said it went for $450 million which is way above any conceivable price. And my view is it's not a price for a painting, it's a price for buying into Leonardo. It's not, it, it, it was not marketed as an old master painting, it was put in a sale as celebrity works by contemporary and 20th century artists. It was kept out of the old master sales, it went on a world tour. It's a fantastically you know, slick piece of, slick piece of, uh, of marketing. The sale itself, um, very, very brilliantly staged. Um, the bids were attenuated. Uh, the auctioneer sort of took the bids slowly and the, the telephone bids came in very slowly to build up the tension. It was entirely stage managed and uh, with great brilliance and great tension because they could have gone through the auction in three or four minutes, basically. And they managed to stretch it out with great tension. Um, the, there are the telephone bids coming in. Those of you interested in gender separation and differentiation can draw your own conclusions from what's happening in the box there. And yes, and 450 million. That includes the the buyer's premium, by the way. But uh, it, it, by, it, it's it's a lot, lot of money. And where did it go? I was told by Christie's. Um, that it had been sold to the Department of Tourism and Culture in Abu Dhabi. Uh, and that seemed to be right. And they were due in September last year to launch it, to have it on display. This wonderful, wonderful museum. I don't know if anybody's been to Louvre Abu Dhabi, but it's, it's to my mind, the greatest of all the, the modern museum buildings. It's both a spectacular building but it also shows the works of art very well. Many of the great signature art galleries are ego trips on behalf of the, art, uh, the architect and are not very good for the work of art. As Frank Lloyd Wright supposedly said about the Guggenheim, the building is the work of art. Um, but the John Nouvelle's building, this wonderful fractal come Islamic uh, uh, openwork dome with these then cells and pods underneath, um, and that, that was where it was going to be shown. Um, I advised Louvre Abu Dhabi before they opened, and I went out to the opening, and it is just just stunning. Traditional Europeans, maybe even Americans, get slightly huffy about the Arabs buying up, but the British spent three centuries hoovering up world heritage, so we can, and, and the Americans then spent a century hoovering up world heritage. So we're, we're not we're not really in much of a much of a position to uh, to com- complain about it. And where is it now? George mentioned quantum mechanics, and uh, um, Richard Feynman said anyone who understands quantum mechanics doesn't. And anyone, anyone who claims to know where this picture is doesn't know. The Arab hierarchy are very tight, it's very secretive, the staff don't know. And it's, a, it's very, very characteristic of, um, of how the culture works. I wrote saying, you know, if you have doubts about it, I'm perfectly happy to come out with all guns blazing and say, that, you know, this is absolutely secure as Leonardo. But I don't know what's happening. The Louvre obviously want it for their exhibition in, in, in the autumn this year. But it's unclear whether they will get it. Um, Mohammed bin Salman has been broadcast fairly widely as the owner. Maybe, maybe not. 
Um, he's the man, of course, who's caught up in the Khashoggi affair and the, the killing of the, of the journalist. So he's got other things on his mind, um, which may take precedence over Leonardo. But I don't know. We're publishing a book with Robert Simon, with one of my former graduate students who's done the provenance research, and I talk about the painting. That's coming out next year, and it's rather odd writing a book about a painting that you don't know what's happened to it. Um, We may have to do some rather fast uh, adjustment at proof stage, but um, anyway, there, there we are. That's just some of the story. Um, Leonardo is extraordinary to deal with over the years. There's always stories. I'm always surprised. I'm never surprised to be surprised by Leonardo, but I'm always surprised by what the surprises are. Um, I've been involved with thefts, with cops and robbers, with the dubious dealing with the Leonardo loonies in great numbers. And of course, you have Dan Brown coming along as well. So. Um, <laughs> No, it is just extraordinary. There's no other cultural figure has that reach. Uh, um, uh, there are big cultural figures, obviously, but um, the kind of in the visual world, in the world of visual images, no one comes close to Leonardo. And yeah, let's look at the picture then. That's that's just a little taste of what is a very exotic and extraordinary story. When I started working on Leonardo anatomical drawings, I was a natural scientist and sitting in a drafty Glasgow flat. Um, with a gas fire, I never thought that uh, I'd get involved in all this kind of stuff. It's just unbelievable. We knew that Leonardo painted a, or originated a composition of the Salvatore Mundi. There were copies, um, lots of copies, and Leonardo was enormously heavily copied, much more than Michelangelo, not copied that much, uh, much more than Raphael, who's copied a good deal. But uh, these are this is just four of the... Uh, of the related works. The one in the top left is very interesting, as we shall see. It was in the Worsley collection, has disappeared. So if anyone knows where it is, I should be very pleased to know about it. The one on the right is rather a good version, formerly in the Ganet collection, now in another private collection, which has been claimed as the original, unconvincingly. The one on the left gives you an idea of uh, some of the the less satisfactory cop- versions of it. Um, that, that's the one I referred to as the drug-crazed hippie. <laughs> and on the right is an interesting picture, relatively newly discovered. This is by Leonardo's rascally pupil, Salai, who was a kind of front man for Leonardo of rather dubious, uh, dubious ethics. But this is signed and dated 1511, so this is, um, this is nice because it gives us a reference point for Salai as a painter, and it also gives a point at which says, well, Leonardo's composition must have been well on by, by, the, by that stage. Um, there's a spectacularly good etching by Wenceslas Holler, the 17th century um, engraver, the Czech engraver, who worked mainly in Holland and in Britain and did lots of engravings after works in British collections. And this, for, and I'm not going into the provenance here, it was almost certainly in the collection of Charles I. The Holler engraved it, but this is 1650, and Charles was executed in 1649. And he doesn't record which collection it's in, and lots of Charles's cultural possessions were given out to debtors, to people who, uh, to uh, the, the, the king's creditors, rather, you know, that... Um, the Commonwealth itself didn't have much spare cash, so they distributed around groups of people who Charles I owned money. They gave out what they called dividends, and this was in one of the dividends, which went to a man called Captain Stone. Anyway, 1650, it was essentially a homeless picture, and uh, that corresponds very closely, really closely, to the uh, picture we now have um, and it doesn't correspond so much to the other copies. And the two drawings, um, the red chalk drawings, red on red, which is a very extraordinary technique if you think about it. But Leonardo liked the softness. You think of if he has to draw for Mona Lisa or draw for the Salvator Mundi, and he wants that elusive softness, which is characteristic, then red on red really does that much better than doing red chalk on, on a white or, or light background. Um, the one on the on the left is uh, uh, is for the sleeve of the blessing hand. The one on the right, obviously, he's um, thinking about these gathered rivulets of drapery, very like Mona Lisa, caught up in the neckband and then 
coming out as like little waterfalls in a way. Um, and he's he's at this point uh, not decided on the cross bands completely. He's got one band across and he's beginning to work out its folding, but he hasn't got the other band across. And then there's a, a drawing, I think, maybe by a pupil, maybe or maybe touched up by a pupil of the uh, of the hand. So we've got this idea before that picture emerged that Leonardo was involved with the Salvatore Mundi. Was the original Leonardo, or was it just a studio picture? There are pictures which were designed by Leonardo and only came out of studio pictures, sort of saleable objects, um, uh, which had the Leonardo brand on them, but without being uh, what we would now describe as fully autograph. Uh, the Worsley one is rather interesting. Um, that was it's slightly pedantic, uh, slightly fussy in how it's done, and without the elusive ambiguities and subtleties of Le- Leonardo. But it's got the original sleeve, the sleeve in the drawing, which is different from the sleeve in the painting. And this happens a lot with Leonardo. He's a very slow painter. He takes years, generally, over most compositions. And the inventions along the way, the earlier states of a picture or the earlier designs leak out, and you get uh, pupils' works which show the picture in an earlier design or even show it in an unfinished state and then develop it up. So that's very, very characteristic. Um, and there, I've, you can see the two sleeves there and the way in which the, uh, this, this picture has, has picked up on the Leonardo drawing and maybe it, it looked like that in the painting originally. Um, the Ganet picture is rather good, but the infrared uh, image, infrared reflectography, is a very powerful with Leonardo. It can get through translucent layers of pigments and then picks up the carbon-rich underdrawings. So you're getting an underdrawing out. And this underdrawing here is absolutely characteristic of a copy. It's niggling, it's precise, there's no spontaneity, the line doesn't move with any kind of energy. Um, and for a whole series of other reasons, it's uh, it's not Leonardo. At one time, there was a there was a cross bands on the sphere and a cross on top, which is one of the iconographical types. But um, this is pretty nice. Uh, it could could well be French. It's normally thought to be Italian, but anyway, uh, it's it, it, it's a it's a good copy, but not good not good enough. And there are these pretty awful copies now. That looks rather discouraging, but the picture, as I said, came up in this auction in in Louisiana, in in New Orleans, um, and the two dealers saw it and uh, decided to bid for it. And this is the image in the catalogue which attracted them, and it was still on panel, so they thought, oh, well, most of the copies are on canvas, later copies. They thought, oh, well, it's probably pretty early. Let's, Let's have a look at it. They asked the auctioneers for a better image, um, uh, a high-resolution image, and that looks not bad. If you see that, you think, well, you know, it, it's obviously rather scarred, it's not in very good condition, but it's as the copies go, it's certainly worth thinking about it. And uh, they, they, they bid on it in the, in the auction for something under $10,000, which is not trivial money, but um, it's obviously cheap in... Um, in terms of what we now know about it, but um, it, it meant that there was obviously some competition for it. They got it back to New York. Robert Simon uh, is very friendly with Diane Modestini, a major restorer in New York, a major conservation scientist who teaches at the Institute of Fine Arts. Uh, Mario Modestini, her husband, was older husband, older husband, also a distinguished restorer. So he decides to take it in New York to let them have a look at it to, to see what they think might be done about this picture in terms of conservation. He put it in what I would call a bin liner, I think what you call a trash, trash bag, and these sort of black plastic ones, got in a taxi and took it across, across New York. Uh, Diane Modestini did a very quick surface test clean of a bit of it, and it and it looked pretty promising. Again, they didn't think this could ever be an original, but they knew it was worth going ahead. And centimetre by centimetre, in good European terms, or inch by inch in Brexit terms, um, 
uh, uh, this picture emerged, uh, and they they could hardly, but they didn't want to believe it's original. You don't want to believe that. Was you start seeing what you want to see. Once you convince yourself something is say by Leonardo or whoever, then you begin to see it in that light, and you don't you haven't got the kind of critical critical faculty that you uh, that, that you actually need. Now, Robert Simon, who's a terrifically good dealer, but he's also a great historian, he's a great researcher, an actual sleuther, um, worked out that this picture had previously been this one. And it was owned by the Cook Collection, a major British collection in the turn of the 19th, 20th century, which had a lot of distinguished old masters in, including the uh, the Fra Angelico Filippo Lippi Adoration of the Magi, now in the Metropolitan Museum. Um, and he tracked it back to the catalogue of the collection and a photograph. The Cook Collection was in Doughty House in London, um, and it had a special gallery built, and the Salvatore Mundi was where that arrow is, and it was... Nobody thought it was any good. It was overpainted and it, it didn't look very prepossessing. And it was catalogued uh, by a rather distinguished art historian as, uh, as Boltraffio, who was a Leonardo pupil. Um, and that was about as good as you could say about it. Um, and it, 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 it didn't attract any attention. The Cook collection was sold off in, in bits and pieces. And in 1948, it, it came up in the... Cook collection sale and it was sold for forty-five pounds, and and there it that it's uh, again Boltraffio or follower of Boltraffio as, as some people said, and the 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 name on the right is Kuntz, and nobody knew who this was, and we toyed with the idea that it was a pun on the German word Kunst, and that it was the kind of silly name that people invent to bid things at auction when they want to be. Uh, when, not, want to be anonymous but it turns out it was the owner's name and that was the owner who was in New Orleans um, the family have taken the idea uh, uh, the, the, the news that um, they had this Leonardo and they didn't know they had Leonardo with a remarkably sanguine and good humour <laughs> I'd be absolutely devastated but um, anyway the conservation Di Diane stripped the picture down and this probably looks right, fairly shocking to you. And it's not very encouraging in some ways, but it's not unusual. These pictures are 500 years old. And if you saw all the pictures in the galleries you rank, you know, National Gallery Washington, the Met, the Louvre, the National Gallery in London, if you saw these pictures stripped down, you'd be quite surprised. They're 500 years old. This had a particularly violent history. Um, it's on walnut, which Leonardo much liked for paintings, but where the curved grain had tented, I, it pushed up, obviously very varied humidities and so on, and, uh, and where it had pushed up and tented, somebody simply took a plane or a sharp instrument and went over the top to level the whole thing out and then really painted on top of the picture to produce the, the, the result which we saw. This is when it's been stripped and the infilling has, 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 has begun. But even more seriously, the picture went into two separate bits once they took the supporting bits of the back off. It, it went into two separate bits and five fragments. And this is Monica Griesbach, who's a great specialist in panels. This is when it's in her studio, as you can see, with the various clamps gluing it back together again. Um, so it's had a violent history. Um, not not the only one, but it, it didn't... A lot of pictures were removed from panel and laid down on canvas from the late 18th century onwards. And that's even worse, because you you get a canvas imprint. It sort of bleeds through the whole, whole of the picture. So it... It's it's not not good, but it could have been worse. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. 
Along the way, as they were restoring it, they found very important signs, including a pentimento. Pentimento is the Italian word for regret. Um, anyway, it's the technical term for a, a change of mind. And in cleaning it, they found the thumb was in two different places, moved around, which is rather characteristic of Leonardo. Even if he's using a cartoon and has got the design sorted out, he, he still... He still fiddles with it. Diane decided to paint out the second thumb. I think I would probably have left it. Um, we're used to seeing these sorts of things now, but there's no right and wrong in it. He hasn't made a mistake, and uh, if somebody wants to clean that off, it's in very soluble pigment, so it can, it can be cleaned off. Um, we found other changes of mind. The interlace on these straps across Christ's chest um, originally much more curvilinear, much much curvier, much more like Leonardo's earlier knot designs. Um, these are bits of yellow pigment, which we've covered, coloured in yellow just to show you that there are fragments of an earlier earlier design. We can't see the whole of it, but um, you, get, you can get some idea what it looked like. And very characteristically, the infrared showed that Leonardo had put the, he the heel, the edge of his hand, into the wet paint, well, as it's drying. His pictures are full of palm prints, not so much fingerprints. He's a left-hander, and in order to blend the pigments when they're partially dry, he would press his hand into it, so you get, you get that, that bit of his right hand. Very characteristic. This is just above the eye. You can see the, the top of the eyelid there. But the boys didn't do this. Um, it's, very, it's a very Leonardo technique to use that handprint. The Ginevra da Benci in Washington is absolutely full of handprints. I was there with David Allen Brown in the gallery when the FBI came in to look at it for fingerprints. These very sinister men with no necks and crew-cut heads and dark suits. They're really, really scary guys. Anyway, they, they were absolutely wonderful at picking up fingerprints, of course, as they're pros at this. And it was all going to be published, but then the head of the FBI got wind of this and the officers were told to, to, to turn their attention to proper things, not to pictures. And it, 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 all, it, it all rather died a death, I'm sorry to say. But you can see the fingerprints, very, and the handprints, uh, particularly in the Ginevra de Benci. Not in the gallery, you need raking light and magnification. But Anyway, the, the cleaning took took this and turns it into that, which is just fantastic. Uh, it's in, uh, the, the, the frog had become a prince, and become the prince of heaven, as it were. Uh, some iconography. Uh, the imagery of the Salvatore Mundi is ruler imagery. Um, this is a 15th century bull um, of Charles IV, uh, 1356 to seven. And he holds the globe as a sign of the ruler imagery. He he also he's not blessing, because he's not not that divine figure. He has the scepter, and he has the cross bands. These are the priest cross bands which are tucked into the belt. And Leonardo looks as if he's doing that, but he isn't quite as we will as we will see. And that had been picked up in the that sort of imagery had been picked up in religious painting. In the centre is the 15th century Netherlandish artist Roger van der Weyden from a triptych, um, very much the uh, Salvator Mundi. On the left in Kefalu in Sicily, uh, an earlier um, an earlier Salvator Mundi holding a book rather than the sphere, and a Jan van Eyck. Um, these Netherlandish paintings were certainly known in Italy, and I think the Italians picked it up from from the uh, from the the, nor the northern artists. But it was a developing genre, a developing type of picture. Frontal, um, Cusanus, the theologian and philosopher in the 15th century, likened this to the inescapability of God's sight. You know, as the cliche goes, these pictures follow you around the room. As their eyes are looking forward, and whichever angle you look at it, they're always seeing seeing you. So Cusana says, "The this image of Christ looking out frontally at you shows you cannot escape God's gaze, or Christ's gaze in this case." So it had a kind of theoretical, for, uh, uh, theological underwriting, and the texts which are always associated with it and were actually 
the blank space under the holler originally had these texts. Now just read the uh, read the John the uh, the I am the way and the truth. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What Leonardo has done, I think, is to take the cross stoles of a priest and turn them into orphreys, much more rigid systems with a great uh, uh, crystal sphere, half sphere in the middle, and turn them into yokes. So I think this is an allusion to the biblical yoke, that you are, as it were, yoked yoke to Christ. As we look into the picture, and you have to look at the picture in its stripped form rather than its restored form, we see things which are absolutely Leonardo. Um, He was always thinking laterally. When he looked at water, he thought of the curling of hair. When he looked at the curling of hair, he thought of water. And the drawing on the left, he says, nota, note how the movement of uh, water is like the curling of hair. You've got the, the current of water. You've got the weight of the hair. You've got the revolving motion. You put those together and you get a helix. It's, uh, it's, they're statics and dynamics, but for Leonardo, they're part of the same, the same phenomenon. And when you look at Leonardo's vortex curls, there's always a sense of anatomy and of physics in them. There, there is a sense of the structure of them. The boys do perfectly good curls. They could do, twist their wrists and they could do the, the nice flashy bits of, bits of hair painting. But with Leonardo, you always got a sense of some phenomenon actually happening underneath it. That there's a kind of rationale behind how those, how those behave. Um, uh, and, yeah, I, uh, I, I enjoy these things if I'm trying to get a sense of who did a picture because they're less arbitrary than just saying these are very pretty curls and they, they look like Leonardo. There's a, there's a kind of logic to, to them there. There's also a logic which none of the copies get in terms of the anatomy of the hand. Uh, Leonardo insisted that young people's anatomy shouldn't be very pronounced, as he said you can make them look like a sack of melons. I think he was thinking of Michelangelo. Um, But the the hand looks relatively uncharacterized, but when you start to look at it, you've got signs of the bony uh, uh, um, knuckles under the flesh and the slight uh, stretching of the of the skin. It's not pronounced, it's understated, but there is a real structure there which none of, the, um, none of the copies get anywhere close to that. They sort of turn them into frankfurters. Really, they, they don't have that sort of that organic structure un- underneath. And very interestingly, the, uh, the cross stoles, the pattern on the cross stoles is, as I suggested, rather different from Leonardo's earlier patterns. He did all these interlaced knotworks, but they're either curly or if they're angular, they're still the same kind of pattern. He was in Venice in 1500. Um, He was doing some consultancy for hydraulic engineering, amongst other things. And he would have seen Islamic patterns. And this is very, very different from his earlier interlaces. I should have brought a slide of one, but anyway, you can take it that they are. On the right is is a suitable Islamic ceramic. And the generating motif of this generating geometry is of a square and a second square rotated 40 45 degrees it's absolutely characteristic of islamic design and you can see it happening there the 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 central uh, uh, jewel there is quite badly damaged but you can tease out the basic the basic structure of it Um, that becomes interesting in terms of dating for an art historian because um, this sheet, which has, you see has got various patterns, but he's working predominantly with these very angular patterns. Um, that sheet has got studies of perpetual motion. The, the wheel is a perpetual motion wheel with a series of uh, weights on rods. And as you turn it round, they flap out down one side and retract on the other side. And he witnessed a, a competition for perpetual motion in Venice in 1500 and denounced everybody and said that he's absolutely futile. Um, he'd been interested in perpetual motion, but decided not least in Venice. So this, this helps date it, because this is a drawing from 1500 when he's in Venice. Um, it again means it's not the court of Milan, which is he left the court of Milan in 1499. Um, 
a drawing on the left in or used to be in Christchurch Picture Gallery in Oxford, but they have inconveniently mislaid it. Um, but you can see there that he's picking up uh, very much that uh, the Islamic tessellated pattern types. It, it's very characteristic and quite different from from the the knot patterns, which were very popular in Italy in the in the fifteenth century. Oh yes, I should also say that uh, looking at that drawing, I suddenly got interested in those little tiny little tiny circles and in the picture the these little bubbles as they they're not really bubbles but let's call them that for the moment and they're done with a little bit of light in pastel and a little twist of shadow and i think there he's thinking you know how can i actually capture those um there are and when we look at this this is what i got noticed when i was first in the national gallery it, this is not glass this has got these irregular inclusions in them. They're not bubbles in glass are perfectly characteristic. They're they're spherical and they have a certain look to them. But this is ab absolutely the sort of inclusions as they're called you get in rock crystal. There are no fracture planes. Pure rock crystal with no faults in them was incredibly highly valued. Very very expensive. Much more expensive than paintings. But in this case, he's indicating to us it's, uh, it's rock crystal. We can make comparisons. Um, uh, the Ashmolean Museum has John Tradescant's uh, rock crystal. Tradescant had a, a Wunderkammerer cabinet of curiosities, which uh, was the basis of the, uh, of the Ashmolean Museum. And you can see that. And I, I got a, a pebble which photographs that rather nicely um, in relation to the Leonardo. Why is he doing this? What's he doing with rock crystal? The Salvatore is the Salvatore Mundi, the saviour of the world, and normally holds a world. It's a, some a brass world, sometimes it's a globe, sometimes it's a little landscape inside the, inside the globe. What this means and, uh, is that this is the, the crystalline sphere of the fixed stars. This is the edge of the known cosmos. Um, it's the crystalline sphere, which is where the fixed stars are, and it's absolutely standard Ptolemaic cosmology. So in this very rigid prescribed subject of the frontal Christ with a globe and a blessing, he's transmuted Christ into from saviour of the world to saviour of the cosmos. It's a very characteristic move. None of the copyists get that. Just to give an idea of how this uh, plays out, this is Raphael and the Stanza della Segnatura, the school of Athens on the left, a terrestrial globe and a celestial globe. And this is on the ceiling. This is astronomy or Urania, who is outside, and the signs of the zodiac are on the, on the crystalline sphere. Outside, that is the prime mover, and the prime mover is moved by God. So that's getting into the realm of the ineffable, the realm of... Um, beyond our, our, our knowledge, beyond our cosmos and beyond our rational understanding, rather like quantum mechanics again. <laughs> Interestingly, the Arbra copy, the one that we noticed with the earlier sleeve, has got a little glowing spot at the middle of it. Um, is that the Earth? That's what you'd expect to find if you were doing the crystalline sphere of the heavens. And the Leonardo sphere is very badly abraded. Those little impasted bits of white, those dots, must be part of the original highlights which are on the sphere, but they've been abraded off. The, the pigment that stood, that stood up and obviously got, um, got abraded, got a, a worn off at a, cer a certain point. So there's a bit, of a bit of uncertainty as to how that was originally characterised, but it is a rock crystal sphere and it alters the iconography in this very striking and novel way. Um, Leonardo was much interested in rock crystal. He was regarded as an expert on such things. Isabella d'Este, the Marchioness of Mantua, asked Leonardo to look at rock crystal vessels in the Medici collection, or formerly in the Medici collection. And this is a, a magnifying glass he invents. It's an occhiali di cristallo, as he says on it, this little rectangular thing on a stand. And it's designed to be used outdoors. And he talks about how you shape this rock crystal with thin edges and fatter in the middle to make a magnifying glass, a magnifying stand of some sort. The text is hideously difficult, I have to say, but um, that's basically what's, what's going on there. And he was interested in... Uh, 
astronomical phenomena and particularly light in the universe. This is the Codex Lester, one of the outer pages owned by Bill Gates. We're doing a five-volume edition of uh, Bill Gates's Codex this year for Oxford University Press. Um, which it's a hideously difficult manuscript. It's 72 pages of the most dense stuff you'd ever hope not to encounter uh, with marginal illustrations. But once you, once you get on top of it, it's absolutely thrilling. Um, amazing revolutionary notions of the body of the Earth. In this case, he's looking at the relationship of the sun, the corpo solare, uh, one step in, the, the moon, and then... And, and then the Earth, and he looked. He's got he's very interested in the crescent moon, and the ashen light, as it's called, the lumen cenereum, which is visible in the dark bit of the moon. With the new, the new moon, you can look at this if you're outside of, uh, outside in the country and not look, covered up by air pollution. Um, the, the the crescent moon, there is a glimmer of light on the on the shaded part of the moon. Galileo observed it. Uh, Leonardo observed it. And Leonardo explained it as Earthlight, that essentially the seas on the on the Earth were reflected in the Moon, and he took the Moon to be a body like the Earth. He thought it had seas and land and so on, which was quite a heretical view in many ways. Anyway, here here he's working out the crescent light, and in the bottom right hand corner, a little tiny sketch. Um, miraculously shows this uh, lumen cenereum, this ashen light, and he explains at the top where it's against the blackness of the void, it looks brighter, and where at the bottom where it's competing with the uh, the, cr- the silvery crescent of bright light, it looks darker. So he's aware that uh, the observation itself is a, is a kind of subjective one. It's not just an optical thing out there, but the eye is doing this... Um, doing this as well. It's the first time in science I, I know anybody saying how does the eye work and what is the eye contributing to this phenomenon? Ibn al-Haytham, the Islamic uh, um, uh, philosopher in the Middle Ages, did something of that, but uh, Leonardo does it in this, in this particular context in a, very, in a very, very novel way. And what happens uh, after 1500 is that Leonardo certainly knew the work of Ibn al-Hazan called al-Hazan in the West and the complications of how the eye works. And I won't go into this in any details. It's, uh, it would take me quite a long time to explain, but he decides, after thinking initially, the eye is rather simple. It just takes in rays and it produces a picture, as it were. Um, on the left there, you can see the up the the upper diagram you've got a spherical crystalline humor crystal again um the lens detentions tends to be spherical i dissected a cat's eye uh, as a doing a level in in biology at school and the lens goes perfectly spherical and the the the, the eye is very difficult to dissect it's a very glutinous thing leonardo thinks at one point you'll boil it like an egg to see if it will like a hard-boiled egg you could make better sense of it anyway there's an in, there's an initial inversion like the camera obscura. It goes into the pupil, it crosses over, and then he sees the crystalline sphere as re-inverting the image because, like everybody before Kepler, he was very unhappy with the idea that we saw things upside down, which is perfectly reasonable to uh, stance to take. Anyway, he devises it, or the, he now knows there's a very complicated optics going on in the eye. And he says that the direct, the most direct ray gives you something of the edge, but each edge will be surrounded by uncertainty. So there's a gradual sort of uh, concentration towards the middle of what you see. And he could deduce this by if you've got, there's an optimum point, which varies, of course, as we get older, at which something looks sharp. Inside that it becomes double or you can't see it. As it goes away, it becomes less definite. So it, it did have a kind of rationale. There's no sense of focus in this. Nobody had any idea about the lens focusing at all at this time. But the upshot is, in the manuscript on the right, that rather poor slide, he writes, the eye never knows the edge of any body. You never absolutely certify and for definitely know the edge. And this, of course, is what happens in his late paintings. It happens in Mona Lisa, it happens in the Salvatore Mundi, it happens in, in the St. John the Baptist. Um, 
it's what is often called sfumato, which is a word I avoid because Leonardo doesn't use it. It's become canonical to say Leonardo painted with sfumato. Um, and I resist it quite heavily because um, it, it's not a term he uses. He doesn't say, I do sfumato. Um, and if we look in the picture itself, we will see this differential focus, as we would call it, a kind of depth of field, but that's anachronistic because it doesn't rely upon focus. The hand is that much clearer, that much more um, sort of waxy in appearance than the face. So he's making space in the picture. It's very shallow space, but he's making space in the picture. The rest goes off into the darkness of the celestial void. Um, but there is a, a real sense that the hand comes forward in relation to the face. As I said, it's a characteristic of Leonardo's work after 1500 and Mona Lisa and Salvatore Mundi in very different conditions, but they share that, fact, that uh, quality. There's no edge. In Mona Lisa, you don't get any edges at all. You tend to think there are edges because you put them in, but they're not there. The eye does not know the edge of any body. And the interesting thing is these are not just optical effects. They operate in terms of the meaning and psychology and the emotion of the picture. On the left, as I uh, argued in the book I wrote on Mona Lisa with an Italian colleague, uh, this is the beloved lady of Renaissance poetry, always out of reach. Dante's Beatrice, um, Petrarch's Laura, these beloved ladies are always out of reach. They're there but inaccessible to our ragged desires. And in, the, in that case, she remains mysterious. And this is obviously a cliche, much remarked on, but it's quite deliberate. It's, um, it's an image, uh, the Italian image of the beloved, per, the beloved lady who is... Um, uh, and the love is always unrequited with much uh, wailing and lamenting from the poets. On the right, we're dealing with the same optical effect but serving a different aim. That's to say the ineffability of Christ. He is incarnate, he's with us, but he's not of us, as it were. He comes from a different wo different world. He is the world outside our our perfect knowledge. Um so this is this optical technique somehow miraculously is used by Leonardo in relation to the meaning of the pictures in a very profound way. Um, which came first? I think neither came first. It's how his mind works. He doesn't see these as separate things. They they work together and simultaneously in his in his mind. Um, a lot's been said about Leonardo as a heretic, and he certainly had original ideas, but his theology was absolutely orthodox. Um, and not at all Dan Brownish in flavour. And he had a doctrine which is called the doctrine of the double truth, the truth of reason and the truth of revelation. It's a well-known medieval doctrine. He takes an extreme view of it, that you can manifest and see God's works in nature through the sheer perfection of creation. God's inventions, nothing is lacking, nothing superfluous. So nature testifies to God's ubiquitous skill, mathemat mathematical skill in devising the, the forms of nature in all their perfection. Um, outside that, beyond that, our intellect can't go. We have to go with faith, we have to go with inspiration, we have to go with the sacred books. As he says, I leave the definition of the soul to the minds of the friars, father of the people who by inspiration possess the secrets. I let be the sacred writings, for they are the supreme truth. I think there's no irony in that at all. And there are other short, pithy statements by Leonardo saying, I'm not going, going there. On earth I can, with my intellect, demonstrate that God is the great shaper of the universe, but I can't tell you the nature of God. It's, as I say, it's a medieval doctrine, it's a perfectly respectable one, which he adopts in a, very, in a very extreme way. And if you look at the late Leonardo, the, theolo the religious subjects in late Leonardo, the Salvatore Mundi and the John the Baptist and the Louvre, these are mysterious figures from a realm we can't understand. They're figures who know the secrets, and there are secrets which we will never know. It's a it's it's a very consistent stance with Leonardo. Um, every sign is that he was employed by church authorities. He wrote a perfectly orthodox will with um, masses to be said for his soul and so on. So any idea that he's a, 
uh, an anti-Christian heretic of some sort is absolute nonsense. Um, anyway, what's going to happen now? We're not at the end. I don't know what's going to happen. It, where, where is the picture going to appear? I trust it will appear in Louvre Abu Dhabi, and I trust it will appear in Paris in the Louvre. But um, with Leonardo, you absolutely never know. Uh, okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. We have time for just one or two questions. Who would like to ask a question? Other than the painting or paintings themselves, what's the basis for the claim that we know that Leonardo uh, painted uh, an image of Christ? Well, the the basis that Leonardo painted an image of Christ, the, the, the big, the, there are two aspects to that. One is the drawings. Obviously, we've got that. We've got the drawings which are for the draperies. We don't have similar drawings to Mona Lisa, but you could recognize, you know, if there were drawings for that. But also, after his death, Leonardo died in 1519, hence the celebrations, um, his pupil Salai, who I said was a bit of an operator, he had a series of paintings which are uh, very highly valued, and somehow or other he got hold of the, the Leonardo legacy. And in that list, there is a Christ in the manner of God the Father is rather a nice way of describing it. I should say the Salvatore Mundi name occurs in music, in Christmas music, but it doesn't occur in painting inventories until the, well into the 17th century. You know, we use these terms and we think that, like Sfumato, they have some kind of period of reality. But um, no, it's uh, in the copies and so on, yes. We, but before the Salvatore Mundi appeared, the we knew that uh, Leonardo had been involved in the Salvatore Mundi composition, but we didn't know whether he'd actually painted one himself or whether it was just a, a studio invention. Um, so it's, we're not, it's not a sort of retrospective thing. We're not now climbing on the bandwagon saying it's obvious he painted it. It was obvious before, uh, obvious that he invented it, whether he painted it or not. So, yeah. yeah, I understand that... Um, that uh, Leonardo wrote at one point that he uh, felt um, that his writings would live beyond him for you know many many hundreds of years, and so he obviously was concerned about his legacy. So I'm just really curious, why was it if he was so concerned about his legacy that he didn't sign the artworks that he created? And you know, was this just a norm of the time? Why why didn't he make sure that everybody would know? A Leonardo is a Leonardo. Yeah, signatures are interesting. They're, they're very rare in Renaissance paintings. Um, Michelangelo, you've got one, which is the St. Peter's Pietà. As a young man, he, he, he inscribed the, the band across the Virgin's chest. The paintings are not often signed. Venetians did it rather more. Giovanni Bellini put these little cartellini in, saying Giovanni Bellinus uh, fake it, uh, made it, and so on. But... Uh, um, yeah, and people knew. I mean, he, he didn't. The people who the you know, Last Supper people knew that was a Leonardo painting. The if Francesco del Giocondo had ever got the portrait of his wife, he would have known who painted it. So, um, and signatures in the sense of I, I actually gave a lecture on this once, and I'm trying to remember what, what I said. But um, um, signatures in the sense of Rembrandt, which is like a signature on a legal document, they're late. You get that in the 17th century. Um, you occasionally get inscriptions by artists. You get them in the medieval period as well, surprisingly. But, um, uh, yeah, signing absolutely wasn't wasn't the norm, and I think he didn't feel any need to sign them because there were not many of them and people knew who'd done it. One more. Oh, great. Um, well, I'll make this a two-four then. The first question is... Uh, who did Leonardo paint Salvatore Mundi for? And the second question is, in the painting of Salvatore Mundi, you mentioned he had a studio. So did Salai or others assist him in the painting of Salvatore Mundi? Sure. Yeah, no, they're too good and good and sent uh, and uh, painted for. Yeah, we absolutely don't know. Um, I think it's commissioned. He painted a f some Madonnas, I think, as off-the-peg pictures, one of the versions of the Madonna, the Armwinder, both of which were involved Leonardo. One was a commission, and I think the other was a was an off the peg picture. 
and small devotional pictures could be done like that in by the studio or by the artist as uh, as a picture which was available to be bought um, so but in this case i think it's very likely to be commissioned because it's an unusual subject it's a known subject but madonna and child of course almost everybody who could afford a madonna and child would like a madonna and child in the question of Salvatore Mundi, it's a very specific one which has a very specific quality. So I suspect it's commission and we don't know who by. There's no shortage of possibilities, but you know, we, just, we just don't know. And of course, if it was commissioned, like a lot of other Leonardo paintings, the patron never got it. Because that, that, you know, it's not just Salai's account of um, the pictures he had, but um, Antonio de Beatis, the secretary is to the... Um, uh, to the Cardinal of Aragon, visited Leonardo in Amboise, in Clos-Lucet, in the manor house he had when he was in France, and he had a number of the major pictures with him. So he kept these pictures. They were like his children, I think. And the patrons didn't get them. It's very, very extraordinary. Um, sorry, the second question is, he, he had assistants, and there you obviously make qualitative judgments um, I can't see in the stripped-down picture obvious areas where you can say, well, that is just studio. But you might imagine, for instance, with the um, with the bands and their geometric patterns, that's a repeat, you know, once Leonardo had done it. And the, the band does vary a bit in quality, but whether that's abrasion or, or whether it's a sign of studio work. But, yeah, you can't rule out studio work in this. And... and Probably not in Mona Lisa, which is um, which he uh, un, which took years and years, and um, I think there's no studio work in that, but it's possible. I don't see any, but it's entirely possible. Yep. Thank you very much. It was just fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. I guess the I guess the patrons who commissioned the paintings, at least their names have come down to, to history. Um, for having done it. They never got the painting, but at least they, <laughs> yeah, their name came down. So thank you very much. And so ends another uh, event at the Commonwealth Club, and it's now 117th year of enlightened discussion. Thank you all very much for coming. And Martin will sign uh, copies of his book, Living with Leonardo, uh, in the library for anyone who would like to.